Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our next guest is Brian McGrady. Brian is the Vice President of Business Development for Core Title, a full-service title insurance company that's headquartered in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Brian also is a phenomenal networker as well as an entrepreneur. Brian, thanks for joining us today. We're glad to have you on. You fit all the molds of what Blue Collar Yield strives for. You're in the real estate industry. You're an expert at networking as well as an entrepreneur. First off, can you tell us exactly what title insurance is and why it is important to have it? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways in which I probably could answer that question, but I'll just kind of say what I tell most buyers when I chat with them is that at the end of the day, title insurance is, is straight up for protection. So essentially, the seller's problems and issues, their property and what they might have encountered don't become the buyer's problems. They don't carry over. So that title insurance, what we're doing is making sure that we find out exactly what those problems or issues could be, expose those to everybody, and then make sure they're either corrected for the future as well as protected for the buyer. Thank you. Could you please walk us through the settlement process for a commercial real estate transaction and all the players involved? And what is the title company's role in the closing process? For sure. Well, commercial and residential title insurance in general, the title company is usually the quarterback of the deal. They're gathering all the information. They're, again, doing an abstract of title, which I previously alluded to. And from there, what they're also doing is just making sure all the numbers are correct. We are essentially a disinterested third party. What we're really doing is carrying out the actions of a lender or the best wishes of the buyer to make sure that, again, they have free and clear title. So there could be attorneys involved in a commercial transaction, lenders, the commercial brokers themselves, the buyers and the sellers, or any other parties that just might be included in there. I mean, it could be a variety of things, so it's not necessarily a cookie-cutter scenario. In a residential transaction, kind of the same. You know, sometimes you might have a couple attorneys in there. You might have even some financial people involved. So it all really depends on each individual transaction and what the climate or the book of business that somebody's bringing into it. So whether they're a company that's, you know, financing or gathering up and acquiring various properties or multiple properties versus just somebody buying a house or refinancing, that's kind of what the title company's involvement is. But to get into further detail, I'm sure we probably need about an hour of your time. <laughs> yeah, you can hit Brian up for further detail, and we'll give you all his contact information at the end of the episode. So our listeners might remember signing off on the settlement statement when they purchase their home or investment property. I know the settlement statement goes by different names like HUD-1 form, HUD sheet, etc. Could you please walk us through how the settlement sheet is produced and its role in the closing process? Yeah, actually, our information is a little bit outdated on that one. So back in 2015, they got rid of the HUD one or that settlement sheet, as they called it, and they made a, what's called a bifurcated closing disclosure. So essentially, the seller gets one side, the buyer gets the other side, and they don't really get to know who meets in the middle. So in the event that, let's say you have a transaction and somebody has been living in that house for 30 plus years, so they're getting a lot of money back, right? So in the sense that when they're arguing over something maybe small, like a $500 fix up somewhere, who knows, I'll make up something, maybe some drywall damage and or they need to fix some or remediate some mold, who knows. As you can imagine, back in the day when you saw a settlement sheet, you would see everything. So you would see how much the seller was getting back, you'd see how much the buyers moving forward and even what their rate was. 
So back in 2015, Congress got together with a variety of different people associated with real estate and came up with that bifurcated closing disclosure. And then essentially the buyer gets their side and all their personal information stays on their side. So that way the seller can't get involved and vice versa. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. And then are there any crazy stories that come to mind that you feel that you can share? Things that unexpectedly popped up during a title search? All kinds of things. I mean, that's the fun thing about title is that, again, no deal is ever the same. You know, you have people with different financial backgrounds that are coming to the table. You have every single property is, you know, totally different. And what's crazy about it is, is even though you might be in one property and living next to your neighbor, you know, you could find out that they have something attached to their property that happened a long time ago. Like when you have dry towns, like the Hatterfields and, you know, I believe the Collingswoods of the world or whatever it was, mm-hmm. back in the day, somebody decided that they just weren't going to have any commercial businesses that were going to be distributing alcohol. So that's why you have townships that are dry towns, Ocean City, New Jersey, a variety of them. So there's kind of cool things like that. But the fun things, if I could pick off one, we'll call them fun anyway, a little stressful. But let's say in a commercial transaction, when you're doing uh, an assessment of the entire property, not only are you just talking about the meets and bounds, essentially what area or lot of land that you're essentially you're you're doing an abstract title for, but you could find something on there like a really rare flower, like one rare flower that would literally hold up the entire deal because that is an endangered species. And so you have somebody's getting involved and the environmental agencies are getting involved and they were to say, well, you can't buy this or you have to protect it in some way, shape or form because it's in a natural habitat. It's, it can get chaotic. I've seen, you know, testing, well testings. I've seen environmental issues again come up in different forms. Hydrocarbon plume that held back on things that needed to be remediated, you know, repairing rights and issues, basically like, you know, water, you know, having, you know, it's, authority, so to speak, and what the, I guess, the turbulences that could come from that because of what was previously done. Who knows? It could be a variety of things. And is our radon pocket something to be concerned about as well? I mean, there, yeah, there could be a variety of things. I mean, it really just kind of comes down to each and every single deal and where you're at, you know, and what's local to that area. You know, as we know, you know, humans, they make their mark on the world, on society. And so I can imagine, obviously, even, you know, with environmental issues that might cause by fracking. Because that's a big thing. You know, that's a big popular issue. So there could be so many things that once they're found, they need to be taken care of and they need to be addressed. So that's kind of the hiccups that you might come along the way of purchasing a property. Can you tell us any horror stories about people who opted out of title insurance and regretted it? Or a time you got a huge thank you from a client because it helped them avoid a horrible situation? Let's put it this way. Usually when you kind of give somebody advice and they don't take your advice, especially when it comes to taking title insurance, that doesn't really come too much of an issue. It's more along the lines of using one that might be a reputable title company. Sometimes that's a deal. Somebody sees a discount for 50 bucks. Okay, perfect example. I got a phone call from one of my realtors and she is a very loyal client. She's awesome, but she does her best to really look out for the people that she works with on a day-to-day basis. And this guy found some type of title company that wasn't underwritten by the big five. We have really large underwriters that a lot of the title companies essentially are an agent for, and then they produce the title insurance policies. But anyway, they found somebody that was online that was owned by some big conglomerate. And what their big thing was is that they could see, you know, a a large percentage based off of the other title companies out there. Well, the problem was is that they didn't communicate at all with the realtor, with his attorney, with a variety of professionals, but something that could have taken about three or four weeks took over two months. 
by the time they actually got to the settlement table, it took them about a four-hour closing. The guy that showed up about the uh, settlement was just probably a glorified notary. P.S. Anybody on earth can become a notary. You could just go to, you know, your local uh, shop and, and essentially do a background check, and you can get become an authorized notary. So, with that said, this person showed up in like board shorts and flip flops and a Hawaiian shirt, and didn't really know anything about what was going on in the transaction. And I think it ended up being about four hours until they finally got to the end of the deal. It shouldn't take that long. It should range anywhere between 15 to 45 minutes max. Anything past that, you're probably waiting on money or something crazy happened with title. So that's the difference between reputable title companies and somebody that's just trying to find a couple dollars to save one. Believe me, it's really not worth it. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it, especially when you're buying a six-figure piece of property. You know, why risk it for uh, 50 or or $100, right? Oh, yeah. And that's it's hard to to you know, tell somebody about that. It's kind of, I'm sure, the same thing people go through, whether they're an estate planning attorney or even life insurance. You know, They can tell you how important it is when you don't need it, you know, but then when you do need it, is it too late? You know, So that's the deal of, of just trying to find somebody that is reputable and local to you that usually your realtor or your lender or your attorney has a good relationship with, a good working relationship. They're really probably going to point you in the right direction. And if not, then at least you can hold them accountable. So are there any ways people can fake titles or claims to a property? Oh, yeah. There's a big thing right now that's going on, a couple of issues rather. It has been check fraud as well as wire fraud, you know, and there's even horror stories of where title companies have held money and then just left and then taken the proceeds and, you know, going off into the middle of nowhere and then never to be found again. There are horror stories like that. And that's why I would say make sure you do your research about the company and you know, talk to the, the sales rep if you need to talk to them or maybe even talk to whomever you need to to make yourself comfortable because there are those situations. What I can really say is when it comes to the wiring and check fraud, that really comes down to making sure that it's almost like when you read one of those emails where it's like Prince Ali Ababwa wants you to send him $5,000 so you can get $2 million in return. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. If they're asking for things multiple times, if they're those fishy emails, I mean, you're going to find yourself probably in some type of fraud or some security measures that you probably haven't thought of before. So something to be aware of. Yeah, thank you. So how competitive is the title insurance industry and what sets core apart? Oh, man, extremely. It's um, In fact, I would like to use the word oversaturated. You're going to find a lot of title companies that were out there, more importantly, because of different trends that just went along with the industry. For example, Jim Weikert back in the day of, you know, the Weikert brokerage, he came up with the idea of the in-house title company. And so you have a lot of in-house title companies, meaning that they're a part of the brokerage where sometimes the agents get a kickback or even have some type of incentive to use them or managers even push them to use them. Now, don't get me wrong, not a bad opportunity. I get it. You know, everybody's an entrepreneur trying to make a couple extra dollars when they have a captive audience. But what it really comes down to, have you ever known one of those friends that, you know, maybe they have five different jobs, but they're never really a master of one of them. Yeah. So you kind of wonder yourself, you know, can they really do it as well as an independent? So what Core tries to do is we try to make a unique settlement experience where somebody can really just say, man, I didn't even have to know what I had to do. I, didn't have, I just walked in and I had, you know, a cup of coffee and hey, man, there were some coffees and donuts and or a sandwich wrap. And I just had to sign my signature a couple of times and I was in and out and gone. And that's what I want to hear. Because at the end of the day, they've done so much to get to that settlement table. They've shown years and years of taxes. People have gone through their bank accounts. They've done inspections of all types and sizes. And really, we just want to make that the most pleasurable experience that they could have at the end of the day. One, because 
it helps our clients. So usually those attorneys, those realtors, those lenders really kind of put their name in lights and show that they have a really good package, a dream team of people that they bring to the table. But more importantly, you know, we just want to kind of get the black eye away from the real estate industry that it earned way back when during the whole you know housing crisis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are some really good reputable title companies. And I like to say the core is setting the standard. They're setting the bar high. That's great to hear. So are there certain processes in the title industry that you think are archaic and that will evolve and eventually become more efficient over time? Yeah, definitely. There's just finding it, doing an abstract, the title itself. I mean, you're talking about a lot of information that has been passed down from generation to generation. And I do literally mean since the 1800s. You know, the first title insurance company was created back in Pennsylvania way, way, way back when. And ever since then, if they're kind of using almost like the Dewey Decimal System for those people who are young enough or old enough to rather to remember that. I mean, you literally have searchers going in. And if you can also another, you know, way back, microfleche, if you remember that, you know, going back and finding old newspaper articles or, or even just where things came from. Some states are awesome. Like Florida, I can get a search back within minutes. When you're talking about like maybe an older area like Philadelphia, where you have tons and tons of properties and lots and lots of blocks from many, many years, they just need to get back into it and become part of that electronic age where they can get that those systems, those files, those searches, those, that information on some type of drive somewhere. And that's what they, I think everybody really needs to move in that direction. That'd probably be the first one, I would say. So what effects do you think blockchain technology will have on the title industry? Do you see title companies trying to prepare for advances in technology? Yes and no. I mean, some people just make like little quick fixes and little band-aids. Other companies are just a little, like you said, archaic. You know, they've been doing something for so long for, you know, for so many years, it's kind of hard to change. And more importantly, there's not a lot of new software to really kind of push that along. I mean, there might be some different things that they could use on the sales side. There could be different creative methods they could use in marketing. But what it really comes down to, there's not too much innovation, I would say. If it is, it's more so in the back end office that the consumer might not see that might make the business itself run a little bit more efficiently. But as I've seen so far, there are some things on the horizon that have been whispered about, but nothing really that's, you know, shocking the world. And then I like that you teamed me up for the next question. So for those of you who don't know Brian, he has been innovative in marketing and leveraging social media to build what we say his brand. Brian, can you tell us what you've been doing and how that's been working out for you? For sure. I've been a sponge, especially since you know, the last year or so. I do my best to really just try to understand a variety of different things. A lot of professionals, people that are loosely associated with real estate and people that are just right involved, like I mentioned before, those professionals, the attorneys, the realtors, the lenders, see what they're doing, see what the trends are, and really just kind of help them out. For me personally, to build my own brand, it just came down from what I do naturally. And what I do always try to do is just be authentic. Uh, book, I love this book. It's called Starts With Why by Simon Sinek, fantastic read, easy read. And, you know, he talks about just being your authentic self and really sticking to those things that make you, you. So I try to carry that same thing that makes Brian McGordy, Brian McGordy, and then carry that same personality over to my social media presence. And if I can attract new people that might be attracted to that same thing, that they're on my, on my bus, so to speak, then great. And if not, that's okay too. So what's really worked for me is just being me. And, you know, not trying to be so professional all the time. I think sometimes people get so stuck with trying to be the Vanna White, their own marketing and portfolio and and social media presence that 
they kind of lose themselves in it. So I would say just be you. And now, Brian, for those of us who don't know, can you break down what on your bus means? Yeah, there's a, another good book. It's called The Energy Bus. A good friend of mine, Jackie Rick, recommended it to me. And it's really an awesome book that I'm sure a lot of coaches would give to their athletes to kind of get them on the same playing field, to get them on the same mindset and wavelength. Um, and what that really means is if I have a belief system and what I'm about, that don't stray away from that. Don't water myself down to bring other people in, but more so try to find those same people that believe in the same things that you believe in. And then from there, you know, your bus is that magnet of those type of people and, you know, go out and search for those people. And once you do, you'll find that your relationships are a little bit more solid because you're not constantly arguing and trying to show somebody your point of view, but more so, you know, maybe getting a little bit of different idea of things and how they might do it. But you guys have the same general idea. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, perfect. I know you love that book and I just wanted to give you a chance to shout it out. So for sure. Yeah. And then, so what would you say has been your most successful or copied marketing technique that you've used? Oh man, Uh, I don't want to give away the secret sauce. You don't have to say it if you don't want to. We could skip that. (laughs) I'll say this is that genuinely doing your best to help somebody out goes a long way. Okay. People have, as Gary Vanderchuk has said, you know, people have a really good BS meter. They're going to know when you're not being authentic. They're going to know when you're just selling them. They're going to know when you're, you're just not being you, you know, and you have maybe some other hidden agenda. And honestly, nobody wants to be sold to. They just want to be a person that somebody can help them out and somebody that's really going to, you know, just say what and do what they proclaim that they're going to do. It's rare that people can do that. And so I try to live up to my word. I'm a little old school on that side, you know, raised by my grandmother and, you know, a lot of old school people and a lot of great mentors. And if I could say anything is, you know, I hate to be cliche, but your word is your bond. And a lot of times people are okay with, I hate this phrase where they say, I'd rather ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. I hate that. You know, why don't you just be upfront and just handle it from the first time and have a really good line of communication between you and the other party and explain why you want to do the things that you want to do. And if they don't, Maybe they're just not on your bus. That's great advice, Brian. Thanks. So you started your own business. Can you tell us what it was like? Maybe you faced some insecurities, some stress, something along those lines? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anytime. I mean, I think any business owner, any entrepreneur will tell you that start anything from scratch. There's going to be, it's not all candy canes and rainbows. You're not making a ton of money right out of the gate. You don't all of a sudden open up an LLC or a corporation or whatever, and all of a sudden your bank account is filled with hundreds of thousands of dollars. It doesn't work like that. You have to sell your idea constantly to everybody. There's constant adversity. There's constantly people telling you that the idea won't work and that you're foolish and all these other things. So that's the first part is ignoring the naysayers. In fact, uh, was it Arnold Schwarzenegger says, he has the six rules of success. It's on YouTube. Highly recommend anybody just listen to that. I think it's like a three minute thing on YouTube. But one of them, again, is ignoring the naysayers. That's the first part. And then the second part is be open to change. One great thing I heard about Socrates is that the reason why he was so smart is that he realized that there was tons of people out there that might not know something that he doesn't know. So whether they were a senator, an attorney, a banker, somebody of high you know, uh, stature, or even a bum on the street, he or she might know something that he doesn't. And that's what made him so smart that he was willing to admit he doesn't know everything. And more importantly, somebody like Henry Ford, who is, you know, I think there was a book, uh, Think and Grow Rich, where he talked about, I think he was under, uh, was it the Congress was 
putting him, you know, kind of under their thumb and saying, you know, you don't deserve everything that you have and you're not as intelligent as, as the world's smartest leaders of this world, the century, et cetera, rather. And he said, you know what, at any given time, I can press a button on my desk and I'm going to get the best physicists of the world. And then I can press another button. I'm going to get the best engineer. And so what I can say from that message is, is surround yourself by really good people that you can trust that is going to give you good, positive information and even tell you when you're totally wrong. Because you need people to constantly poke holes through your ideas so it becomes better. Yeah, that's great advice. And something else Gary V says that it kind of resonates with me. He said, ignore the booze. They normally come from the cheap seats. So meaning that <laughs> the people who are doing the least are saying the most, but they're not right. doing anything. So if you're not on the same track as them, maybe that's a good thing <laughs> to be yeah. a contrarian. Now, was there a mistake you made when you first started your business that you were kind of glad you made and it kind of opened up your eyes and to look out for it down the line? I would say the earlier part of my career, my life in sales, I made a lot of mistakes. I trusted too much. didn't get things in writing. I mean, name all the novice things that somebody might do. I probably did them. And more so because I just believed that everybody in the world was willing to help me. And I, I can assure you that that's not the case. The world, as Stephen A. Smith had a really good uh, speech and talk. It was just on the other day. I think it was either for Alabama or Texas, one of those big football schools. Mm -hmm. And he was telling about the world doesn't care about you. They don't care whether you survive. They don't care about anything. They're just there to use you to help themselves out. And I can say that, and I don't mean to be doom and gloom. Don't get me wrong. There's some really cool people out there in the world that will help you, but there's going to be a lot more people that won't, and they're just looking out for their own agenda. So protect yourself. Do the best you can. Learn from your mistakes. You know, Don't go so closed off to where you don't let other people in, but you know, just take it with a grain of salt. You know, Every single mistake is an opportunity. So, Brian, you're just outrageously successful at networking. Why do you think that is? What do you think sets you apart from a normal person? Well, thanks, man. I, I don't know if I'm outrageously successful. I'm, <laughs> I like to say I'm pretty good at it. But what I can say is I genuinely listen to what people are looking for, who they need to connect with, uh, why they need to connect with them, what value they're bringing. And I just really just try to be a matchmaker and put those same personalities together. I'm not going to put somebody that is, you know, maybe super, super like to themselves and, you know, introverted. And then I'm going to put somebody that is like over the top, extroverted and constantly bubbly because they're probably just not going to mesh well. They're not going to see the same things. You know, people say you buy from people you like. And honestly, most of that time, it's people that are exactly like you. So with that said, I just try to match make the right people. They're not all gems. What I have found is I can put the right people with the right opportunities and the right vendors but I always set a really good qualifying expectation of if I'm going to put you in touch with this person, if you already know a value you're going to bring to them because you need to have a mutually beneficial business relationship. And if it's not a two-way street, it's a one-way street. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to have a personal relationship where they're doing all the work or they're giving all the love and then nobody else gives. That's not cool. Well, it also works the same way in business. And guys, what I can say is the first time I met Brian, we went out for lunch. I asked him out. He met me. And the first thing he said to me was, how can I help you? So that kind of resonated with me. He had nothing into it for himself. He just honestly flat out asked me, Tom, how can I help you? And then we figured it out. And honestly, if there's a way that I can help Brian down the line, now he knows that he can call me and I'm willing to jump in and go for it. But Brian, when did you realize that you could make a career out of business development? Oof. That's tough. First, just getting into sales and figuring that whole part out was one you know, hurdle to come over. Right. But then the business development side where 
I got a couple of compliments like the one you just gave me. And I realized that, you know, I feel like I'm good at what I do. I mean, I think anybody, any good salesperson has to have some type of ego that carries and pushes them along. But when a lot of people tell you about it, then you realize that there must be some truth to that. You know, it's one thing for me to believe it, but I'm not going to be sitting here like Freddie Mitchell and give myself 17 different nicknames about how awesome I am. I'm going to show you. And the way I can do that is by giving good action and actions, in my opinion, speak louder than words. I got you. So um, does everyone have the capability to be a network all-star? And do you think someone that is quiet and shy can still excel at this? Yes, 100%. There's, I would say this, there's a good group that I was a part of. It's called the 5 AMers. And they had a good question about like, what have you learned this year? And it was talking about change. Every change, it starts with a mindset. It has nothing to do with because you have to, whatever. You have to want to change. You know, do you want to change your life to be for the better? Do you want to become more popular? I don't know. Do you want to become a better salesperson, a better spouse, a better boyfriend, a better husband, a better wife, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Okay, great. That's the first step of saying, yeah, I want to be that. And then realizing of the action that you need to put behind those words. So when you start a race, right, it's one foot over the other until you finally get to the finish line. There is no just stopping halfway and then saying, ah, I'll get it next time. Nobody does that. You know what I mean? They're going to feel embarrassed. I mean, don't get me wrong. People have injuries and things like that. I get that. But the idea is, is that if you're going to change, if you want to become a big networker, you need to do all the things that make a big networker a big networker or the best or the brightest. You can't just say, I'm going to do it, you know, to be, well, to be frank, half-assed. You can't do that. You got to, you know, do everything with two feet in. And you need to become the best you and you need to become the authentic you. And you said something that's really important about networking that you mentioned. You gave me a nice compliment. You said, and I asked first is, you know, how can I help you? Any networker, a good networker is usually going to ask that question first because networking is about giving, not getting. And a lot of people think it's the opposite. They send their sales reps or whomever, or they go with the inclination that they're going to go to a networking event. They're going to find so much business out there. And they're going to try to sell everybody because they think that they are the best and the brightest and somebody should buy from them. No. Networking is about building relationships, connecting people that deserve to be connected with each other, and then finding maybe opportunities or things that people didn't see before. That's what makes a great networker somebody. And then I noticed one thing that you told me was you try to talk to everybody, no matter where you're at. What is the best way to start a conversation with a total stranger? And do you have a go-to question or do you look at them, see what shoes they're wearing, what watch, something along those lines? Yeah, well, yeah. It's, I mean, I talk to people all the time. Don't get me wrong. Just like anybody else, there's times where I want to curl up in a ball and not talk to the world because I'm just overwhelmed and, you know, I need that time to recharge my batteries. But a lot of times I'll be in Wawa in a line. I'll say something, a, you know, a funny comment. I'll joke around about something, a quick conversation here and there. You know, one of my old professors at uh, Seton Hall University, Father McGlone, he always said, I must be talking to my friends. And there's a lot of truth to that. And your friends could be business associates. It could be all types of stuff. So I'm always chatting with somebody. You never know what they're, what's going on in the world, how the world's changing and shaping and how you can help, or even more so what asset you could be to make the world better. So I just find conversation anywhere I can. What is the weirdest thing that you've connected with someone over? For me, it was watches. I'm into automatic watches. Um, <laughs> I, I was at a networking event. Shout out to the South Jersey Chamber of Commerce. And the guy sitting next to me had the same brand. I'm a, I love Seiko. And the, yeah. the guy had an automatic Seiko on. So I asked him, 
the reference number and what kind it was, and then we became very quick friends ever since. <laughs> no, I hear you. It's I'll give you one. This, this is the first one that came into my mind. I was at some type of a realtor association event, and I came across for the first time, which is now a very good friend of mine, Donna Stefano, and she's a broker. She owns PA Realty Works here in Philadelphia. She is a fantastic person, extremely knowledgeable about real estate. But the first time her and I were chatting, she is a South Philadelphia gal, born and bred. And, you know, we were just chit-chatting and she's mentioned something about gardening. And just happened to be that day, I saw some infomercial about this new way of like growing, you know, vegetables where they like basically hang the plants upside down. And so all the nutrients essentially, I, I guess, go by gravity down to the plants and they flourish better. Who knows? I don't know. And she mentioned that. And I happened to mention it to her with it. And I think it was so it probably caught her off guard by so much that it probably just dropped her guard down a little bit. And yeah. she's like, what the heck are you even talking about? I said, I don't know. It was an infomercial that I just happened to see before I came over. <laughs> what do you want me to say? You know what I mean? So I don't come up with cookie cutter things and perfect ways to talk about something. There's times I talk to somebody and they're just not interested in talking back. I right. remember I went down to the shore one time for a short sale association happy hour. And there was a lot of the realtors and agents and attorneys out there and and I remember every single time I started chatting with somebody, they were just looking at me like I had seven heads. And so I felt like kind of like, was it that short scene in Dumb and Dumber where he's going out of the 7-Eleven, he looks at the guy, then he goes, huh, big gulps, huh? And they just <laughs> look at him and he's like, oh, well, see you later. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. there's been plenty of times that people don't respond. So you just keep on moving. Yeah. You got to shoot your shot there, right? You got to keep trying again and trying again. For sure. Yeah. So how much work do you do for free and does it ever bother you? You know, that's a really good question, and I'll be honest about that. There's things that I've done just to help somebody out because I have the ability to. There's a really, really cool thing I saw on YouTube not long ago, and there was this guy. He was a war veteran where he was talking about how he was supposed to be on a hill. I think it was like Vietnam or Korea, something of that nature. And back in the day, it was always about taking the hill and taking the opportunity. You know, you took the hill, then you were, you know, you guys were in charge, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened was, is they realized they were totally outmanned and outgunned. And the, I guess, I can't say the general, but probably one of the higher ups looked at him and he was essentially selected to quote unquote volunteer to stay and protect the hill while everybody else retreated. And I mean, that's a one way task, yeah, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, so well, obviously he survived, spoiler alert, because he's obviously giving this talk. The higher up comes up to him and he goes, son, do you know what responsibility is? And he said, what's that? And he goes, well, it's having the ability to do something and then responding to that time when that ability is needed. So there's times where I've helped people out, haven't expected anything in return just because I know I can and I should because I have the ability to do so. And that's rewarding just to see somebody that has some gratitude on that. But there's been many times that I've helped somebody out, sell a million dollar listing and put something else out there and whatever. And I don't even get a thank you. I don't even get a thumbs up or you know or whatever on a text message. So there's been a little bit of that. And honestly, I'm not going to lie. I'm human. That hurts. You yeah, know, when you're really sure. trying to stick your neck out there to help somebody and you don't get anything in return. But there's just people that aren't going to be on your bus, man. Right. And no, that's a great way to put it. I love the bus analysis. So that kind of brings me into my next question. Have you ever had to cut someone off because you thought they were taking advantage of you? And how yeah. did you communicate your feelings to them? I think my father told it to come to Jesus talk. So there's times where a relationship's just not working out. You know, I like to put the parallel of, you know, people say business, not personal. No, I don't care that business is personal. So what I would truly say is 
is there's been times where people have used or abused, you know, my ability to help them out. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once I find out what the numbers are and, you know, it's just not working out, then you eventually got to turn off the faucet when you have a leak. Right. Right. And when I do that, I can either do it two ways. One, you just turn off the faucet and they'll eventually figure it out, which I wouldn't recommend. But what I would do is have that honest and goodness as my, again, my father said to come to Jesus, talk with him and say, Hey, listen, I've noticed a pattern here. I noticed something's going on. What's up? You know, is there something I did? Is there something? And if you're going to get either a good response or a bad response and just run with it from there, there's times where I would say maybe one in 50 that somebody, you know, was really angry and nasty or whatever. And I just cut off the relationship there. Okay. That happens. But I can assure you it's a really small margin. Most of the time people will be like, Oh man, I didn't even know. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. I'm so sorry. And you'll find out that when you start doing that and you have a good, honest, the goodness conversation with somebody that might be quote unquote, a little higher in the total pole than you, then they're actually going to show a little bit more respect for you because you stuck up for your company and for yourself. So I would say for those people that might be struggling with that exact problem or issue, you know, have that come to Jesus talk and you'll feel better about it. You'll be able to put your head down at night. Thanks for the tips and advice. Now, look, my father always told me to never end on a bad note. So that was a little bit negative. Let's pivot away from that. And we're going to do a rapid fire question. So I'm going to ask you oh, three boy. questions. What was your first Lightning job? Round. What are you reading now? And who's your favorite person that you follow on social media? Oh, man, that's tough. Okay, so first one was first job mm -hmm. was my grandfather set me up with a job with one of his tenants above and the guy did some type of graphic whatever that you put on cars like you know how when you see like an ambulance it's got all these graphics on there it says yeah you know, like, like the stickers and decals yeah all that stuff i did that and i was horrible at it and i messed up so many signs i mean i just didn't have that hand and whatever to do it i was 16 honestly i probably didn't care as much just because i was 16 right. what am i gonna say yeah but i did it for a while god bless that guy his name's john cathcart i can't believe i remembered his name john if you're listening out there my apologies for probably costing you a lot of money, but he was a really nice guy. The next question, Thank You Economy by Gary Vanderchuk. That's something that some of my friends, as well as my sales team, were reading together. We like to grab a book that we can all share and put our thoughts into. So that's the current one. And the last one, somebody I follow on social media. Who's your favorite person to follow on social media? It could be for you know, motivation, advice. If you want to say Emily Ratajkowski, I won't judge you. It's just up to you. <laughs> There's so many. There really is. Here's what I think is that I understand that some professionals or people need to keep up, you know, their persona, you know, like The Rock and things of that nature. And God bless him. That guy's so stinking popular. I, he can't go anywhere for the rest of his life without somebody trying to take a selfie with him. And I mean, I think he handles it with grace for the most part. So kudos to him. So I like to follow him just because he's always pretty positive and he tells a good story for the most part. And he shows gratitude to the people that helped him out. And he remembers where he came from. You always got to do that. And I love following The Rock just because of that. But I also like following Gary Vee too, not necessarily because I think he's got the best messages in the world, just because he's real, you know, and I enjoy real people. I enjoy people that aren't always putting on a show. I was alluding to before, like the Vanna Whites of the world that are always pretending like their life is great when you and I both know it's not. So those are the people that I really enjoy, people that are positive, authentic, and real. That Brian, seriously, thanks again for being on the show and for giving us your time. Tell the people how they can get in touch with you. Oh, there's so many different ways. Social media, of course. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever it might be. Please hit me up. Hell, if you want to give me a call or text message, cell phone is 856-366-8097. 
I'm happy to, you know, include any of my contact information, obviously, on this podcast as well regarding emails. You can always find me at Core. I'm on their website. Pretty much all my information is out there, so I can't really run away from you. But if you have any questions, you want to talk about networking, you want to talk about title insurance, you want to talk about real estate, or you just want to have a conversation, give me a buzz. Thanks, Brian. Have a good one. All right. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.